Let's open our Bibles to Zechariah, chapter 3, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I've entitled the message this morning, The Branch, the Stone, and the Kingdom. And we're going to see a sort of a repetitive theme uh, that the prophets are dealing with, especially concerning the coming kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 8, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch, for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes, behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day, and in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine, under his fig tree. For this to make sense, we've got to keep it in context. So let's go back to chapter 1 and work our way up to uh, these verses. And basically what I'm going to do is highlight the first three chapters. We went through them verse by verse on Wednesday and we'll continue. I'm looking forward to next week in chapter 4. But as we get into the introduction of Zechariah in the first verse here, actually his name means uh, Jehovah remembers. Uh, he's identified with the son of uh, Bechariah, and that means Jehovah blesses. And his father was the son of Ido, which means the appointed time. And certainly this cluster of names with such rich meaning is suggestive of the encouragement given to the remnant that had returned to Jerusalem. So let's put this in context. Zechariah's ministry is to minister to the people, and there's only about 50,000 of them that have, uh, the 70 years is up in in Babylon. They've come home, uh, but they are very discouraged. I mean, they come back to a a pile of rubbish. And um, they have no real heart to rebuild the temple. And so the main thing that God has called Zechariah to do, in the first six verses that we went through on Wednesday, we went into detail saying, look, guys, don't repeat the mistakes of your fathers. Uh, You were sent into captivity, taken to the woods, so to speak, to get your attention because they had gotten away from the Lord. And because they had gotten away from the Lord, the Lord dealt with them for 70 years. But now they're back. In verses 1 through 6, he says in verse 5, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Basically saying, learn from their mistakes. Let's not go through this again. So there's meaning in it. What we have in the first six chapters of Zechariah are prophecies that are both messianic, means that they're about the Messiah, Jesus, and the millennium. Uh, in this section, uh, there is a, um, eight visions, maybe as much as ten, um, that are given to Zechariah, and he gets them all in the same evening. Now, that had to be quite a night, because everything that, the ones that we're going to touch on, we'll go through three this morning. But he gave all these, uh, and they were given to him all in the same evening. Uh, there's a lot in Zechariah that smacks of, the, of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation. 
And we have different ways, like when we study the book of Daniel and the world kingdoms. Well, in Daniel 2, they're metallic, Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold. And then Medo-Persia, silver, and so on and so forth. But you have exactly the same thing in Daniel chapter 7, only instead of the symbols being metallic, they're actually animals. Well, we're going to see in chapter 2 here um, the same information being given, but again using different um, examples. So the first eight chapters were written uh, to the remnant while they were rebuilding the temple. I remember back in our early um, <laughs> ministry days. This is a part of my notes, so first sidetrack already. Sometimes it's back there and it wants to come out, and I say no, but this time I'm going to say yes. <laughs> um, you know, in, when we were in the communal days, from 68 to 78, we were part of house, house ministry that we had a tag team type thing going where we would do group labor so people could go to Bible school. And one of One of the things that we would do is we became sort of like migrant workers, and we would go to uh, um, Malat, Washington, Johnny Appleseed, 900 acres, the largest apple orchard in the country. And we, we brought in the crop, and we would do this every day. But I remember when they were mentioning the water, and Paul talked about taking showers and doing stuff like that, and we take it for granted, I flashed back on that because I had no hot water. A man taking those cold showers in the morning, that woke you up just like that. (laughs) Anyway, for encouragement, we had um, Bruce and Teresa would come, and they would sing to us as we're picking apples. They would write songs, and they would write songs about picking apples. And they did it basically to encourage us in the work. So we have Zechariah. The people come back to Jerusalem, and it's in ruins. So his job is to be some sort of encouragement so that they can finish the work. So the last six chapters, so the first six is written during the building project. Uh, the, the first eight, I mean. And the last six were written after the temple was built with the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. So during his ministry, he was there while it was being built, and he was also ministering after it was being built. Uh, the book of Zechariah contains what we call double prophecies. What's a double prophecy? A double prophecy means that he's ministering something to the people that were there on site. But in the same sense, he's going to use it, especially when it refers to the kingdom that is going to come. I mean, the main thing... Uh, that we should be thinking of and desiring above all things is seek first the kingdom of heaven. Good place for an amen. That should be our primary goal, seeking first the kingdom and praying for it to come. And that is where we have the double prophecy because much of the prophets were looking for the Messiah and his kingdom. Now the disciples knew he was the Messiah, and he would, they were sure that the kingdom was just around the corner. Matter of fact, they argued about it, James and John. One wanted to be prime minister, and the other one wanted to be secretary of state. And all the other guys got ticked at James and John because they were seeking a position. 
And um, they didn't understand that God's plan was going to be at least 2,000 years longer. And um, he told them, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and bring you to myself. And the very spot that Jesus left this planet on the Mount of Olives, later on in Zechariah, we're going to read that he's going to come back to that very same spot, to the Mount of Olives. So the main theme and the prophecies deal with the Messiah and his kingdom. Satan's job, as we're going to see him in chapter 3, going toe-to-toe with the Lord, is to get you not to do that. Matter of fact, he'll do everything in his power to cause you to be effective as a Christian in his life. So chapters 1 and 2 are going to deal with three of the eight visions that Zechariah receives, and again, all in one night. So let's go to seven, chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. We have the horses among the myrtle trees. And we find in verse 7, I saw by night, behold, a man riding on a red horse, and I stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Who is the rider on the red horse? And the answer is, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, but Dwight, it says here, the angel showed it to him. Now, without exception, um, we would be so freaked out if you ever saw an angel. Because every time somebody in the New Testament or Old Testament saw an angel, what happens? They fall flat on their face and they're afraid and the angel has to say, don't be afraid. And in this case, though, it's not an angel. How do I know? Because the angels would ordinarily rebuke the person who is worshiping him and says, don't you dare worship me. Worship God, we're servants of him. But that doesn't happen here. The angel who's the Lord speaks to Zechariah, and he's on a red horse. And uh, the reason I know it's the Lord is he says so. He says, my Lord. Let me give you a, a clearer example of what I'm talking about. Let's turn to the book of Joshua, uh, chapter, oh, chapter 5. The setting for Joshua, chapter 5, is there 40 years has come and gone, and in their wilderness wandering, and they're ready to come into the promised land. But it's the night before, and Joshua wants to get away by himself as he contemplates about what's going to happen. They're going to attack the city of Jericho. So while he's sort of thinking this thing through, in verse 13 it says, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you against us? And the guy said, No. (laughs) And if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, maybe you're not understanding the question here. (laughs) Are you for us or against us? What kind of answer is no? But he says no, but as commander... Of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, Joshua, for the place you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Sound familiar? Moses before the burning bush. Who are you? Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. The reason I know the rider in the red horse here is the Lord. Let's go back to Zechariah. And uh, I can confidently say that. We call this a a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord in the Old Testament. It actually has a name for it, a Christophany. And um, we have one here because the rider on a red horse is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Um, 10 to to 17, uh, as the man is talking with him, um, he's proclaiming that the Lord is going to establish In verse 16, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a survey line will be stretched over Jerusalem. And he talks about my city shall again spread out, verse 17, through prosperity. The Lord will reign and comfort Zion. This can only be during the millennial reign and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, J. Vernon McGee comments on verse 17 and I'll quote him here. Uh, this looks into the future so that these people can recognize that they are working in the plan and program of God, which extends into the future. Allow me to make an application for Christians today. Are you and I working in something that has eternal value? Fair question. What are you doing today? What value will it be 10 years from today? A hundred years from today, a million years from today, are you and I actually working in the light of eternity? We should keep that in mind, and I say a big amen to that. So what are we um, laboring and doing? Well, what's going to last? First Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the judgment just for Christians. And um, it talks about how we build, what we've done. Everything's being recorded. All that we do counts. And someday, the Lord is going to separate the stuff that we did with the right heart and the right motive. That's the gold, silver, and precious stones. That's going to remain. And then there's a wood, hand stubble. In other words, we did it, but our motive was to draw attention to ourselves or, or to be recognized. And um, we're told, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do it in secret. So that your father who sees in secret, he will reward you only. I get garbage junk mail every day about investments, and I always got to push the the unsubscribe thing and then go through all that and unsubscribe. And how to make it um, in this world. I'm talking about financially, so that you feel secure. Well, that's just the opposite of what the Lord is saying here. Invest in things that are really going to last? Are you doing it? And this is called being exhorted. I need to hear this. And yet, as McGee pointed out, um, it has eternal benefits and rewards. All right, as we look at this um, vision of the uh, the horses and, 
and uh, the kingdom that's coming, um, basically the Lord is saying through this that he's going to establish and reign over the kingdom again. And that basically brings us to verse 18, which is the second vision of the four horsemen and the four craftsmen. Let's read them. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, well, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I would call them carpenters today. And I said, well, what are these coming to do? So he said, well, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head, but the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the crowns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Those people who have come against Israel. So we read in verse 18 here, uh, these four horsemen, we find um, that as we've studied Daniel and Ezekiel, Daniel talked about the times of the Gentiles. And the three of the horns in Daniel here, uh, in turn, are going to be judged under the hand of God. Gentile nations that came against Israel in the past, and um, he mentions them, um, while the fourth and the last horn is cast down by the world kingdom. And that is set up when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, and he's going to destroy all these other nations that come against him. Now, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that you can't get past um, Psalm 2. You mean you have Psalm 1, it's only six, six verses long. And then as soon as you get into Psalm 2, the whole psalm is about the battle of Armageddon. And that's what we have in view here. The first horn that we're reading about here, it's symbolic, but it's a reference to Babylon. It's being cast down by the Medo-Persian. That's the second horn. The second horn, the Medo-Persian, accordingly in turn becomes the first smith or carpenter. The second horn, the Medo-Persian, is cast down by the third horn. Uh, that becomes the second smith. And the third horn, Greece, who was under probably the greatest military leader of all time, Alexander the Great, he in turn is cast down by the fourth horn, which is Rome, which thus becomes the third smith. And the fourth horn, which is Rome, the most dreadful of all, does not become a smith, but it is, it, it is revived, and this is yet future. So let's just go back through history. Nobody has dominated the world since Rome. Um, three or 400 A.D., and um, they, they fell apart and deteriorated from within. But what we have that's reoccurring here, we're talking about Daniel. We're talking about Ezekiel. Why? Because we're talking about Babylon, Medo-Persian, and Grecian, and Roman. But it's in different terminologies than in Daniel. But it's saying the same exact thing. And it either happened or it didn't. Either it's a part of history or it's not. Either the Bible is absolutely right on when it comes to declaring these world empires even before they were. It gives me confidence when it says there's another revived Roman Empire that's going to consist of ten kings under one leader. And it's going to come out of Europe. What is Europe? 
the revived Roman Empire. So where are we living? We're living between the last one, Rome, that completely ruled the world. And here's what my personal two cents worth is on this. I think it's what Dave Hunt has always said. It makes common sense to me. When the Lord takes a church out at the rapture, what kind of effect do you think psychologically that's going to have on this world? I mean, we're, we're being prepped for it. And we talk about it. But the reality of it, it really happened. And all of a sudden, people disappear. That will create such chaos on such a major scale, the unthinkable, something that has never happened before. Like it says, in, like it was in the days of Noah. That's what it's going to be like again. But no man knows the day or the hour, um, not the angels. Only my Father in heaven knows the time of the rapture of the church. For what it's worth, I wish we should become before this Bible study is over. Somebody's got to say amen to that. <laughs> I don't know. The world's getting worse and worse, and I'm getting more homesick all the time. So this future event is going to happen. There will be a revived Roman Empire, and that's what is being stated here. This kingdom will exist until Jesus Christ returns at the Battle of Armageddon. And um, let's get a picture of this. Let's go to the book of Daniel and just read two verses. Daniel would be a couple um, uh, books back towards your left. Go to Daniel 2. Of course, this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to get into the only two verses of it. But it freaks Nebuchadnezzar out so much. And none of his wise men or soothsayers could interpret the dream, but Daniel could. And when he gets to verse 44 and he gives the interpretation of the dream, he's talking about the ten kings that are still yet future to you and I. Um, Babylon has come and gone. Medo-Persia has come and gone. Alexander the Great has come and gone. The Roman Empire fell from within, but it's going to be revived again. And that's what we have in view in verse 44. He's talking about this world, uh, one world government. And we're on the fast track to that right now. I mean, getting chipped these days is just something that people don't think two things about. You chip your dog, or you can chip anything you want to. In verse 44, it says, In the days of these kings, what kings? The future kings that are coming after the rapture. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, verse 45, inasmuch as you saw the stone, and that's why I've titled this the branch, the stone, and the millennium. The stone, which is Jesus Christ, was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this, and yet in the future. And I like this. He says, the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure, the confidence. And we look back and ask the honest question, is this world history? We have to say yes. Just exactly how it happened. All these kingdoms, the one thing they have in common is that they've come 
and they've gone. Now, talking about the future one that's coming, it says that there's going to be this stone. This is Jesus Christ returning at the Battle of Armageddon. And he's going to smite the nations with the sword of his mouth, according to Revelation chapter 19. And their history is over, just like that. There is no battle of Armageddon. There is just over in in a moment's time. And when that happens, then the God of heaven is going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to last forever and ever and ever. Now again, this gives us Um, It should give us incentive. It should encourage us to see, let's see, should I invest in stuff that I can have for a little bit of time and then it's gone? Or do I give my life for something that's going to count for all eternity? Now the Lord says if you're faithful right now, just in the little things, he says I will cause you to be faithful over more. Well, when and where? Well, in his kingdom. In the seven letters to the seven churches, one of, one of the promises to the churches is, I will make you kings and priests in the kingdom, and you will rule and reign with him. Man, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. That's right up there with judging angels. You know, you're going to judge angels someday? And it was sort of a backhanded comment when he even brought it up, because they weren't judging simple things uh, in, in the church. Um, and uh, Paul says, guys, don't you realize you're going to be judging angels someday? Let's take care of, of the minor issues that you're dealing with here in, in discernment and judging. All right, that brings us, let's go back. So the four horsemen and the four craftsmen basically is a repeat of Daniel 2, Daniel 7. Now when we get to chapter Two, we have the man with the measuring line. And chapter two contains the third of these eight visions. And I'm only going to get to verses one and two, and I'll take a little rabbit trail. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, well, what are you, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width, And what is its length? And so right here, uh, measuring Jerusalem. And we'll talk more about this next uh, Wednesday night when we talk about um, uh, the two witnesses, the two olive branches. But let's turn to Revelation chapter 11, very last book in the Bible. Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11. The fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 4 is Revelation chapter 11. The two olive branches. We'll be studying that on Wednesday night. But here in Revelation 11 verse 1, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, he's talking to John, rise and measure the temple of God. Not the city, but the temple of God. Uh, The altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And just for a little background for this coming Wednesday night for Zechariah 4, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth after the rapture. 
immediately Moses and Elijah come on the scene. And um, I'll talk a little bit about Elijah in just a little bit and how I know that it's him. And uh, a coincidence that I had this week. But here it says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Now, if you're margin of the Bible, it should say Zechariah chapter 4. And that's the fulfillment of it. And the point I'm trying to make again is the importance of teaching prophecy. You can't teach the Bible without prophecy. It's just um, intertwined throughout. And we'll get into detail of what I, I, we read right here. But their ministry is for three and a half years. Let's go um, back to um, uh, Zechariah. So chapter 2, we have them measuring now the whole city of Jerusalem. And this here, this chapter is short, it's only 13 verses long, is about the coming kingdom age. So the branch, the stone, and now this chapter is about the, um, the kingdom age. Let's just read 10 through 12 and I'll come back and touch on verse 8. It says, Sing and rejoice, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. He is aroused from his holy habitation. So here we have, again, Zechariah pointing to that kingdom that we saw in Daniel. The, the stone becomes a great mountain. Well, that's the kingdom age. Verse 8 is a shot over the bow of anybody who wants to mess with Israel. It's a warning. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, chapter 2, he sent me after glory to the nations which plundered you. Now he's speaking about those people who came against Jerusalem. And he says, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You ever wonder what the Lord thinks about Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people? Well, this is, this is just a poetic love phrase is the apple of my eye, the love of my life. They're everything to me. And you better not mess with the apple of God's eye. I'm going to, even though I did this last week, I want to emphasize um, men, one person in particular, the president of Turkey. You can put his picture up on the screen. He's President Erdogan. And this has happened just within the last month. After President Trump openly said that he was going to move the embassy in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This guy's response, and I quoted this last week, President of Turkey Erdogan on Wednesday said that his country would not tolerate the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Jerusalem is our red line, and any step against Jerusalem's historic status, holiness, are unacceptable. Erdogan 
said, adding that his country will work towards international recognition of the Palestinian state <clears throat> and, that, and seek the support of the European Union. And then he threatens to wipe out the Jewish people. Well, all I have to say to him is look out because he is messing with the apple of God's eye by openly saying so. And anybody who ever has, they had consequences. God did use Babylon as an instrument to spank his people. But then he goes around after he does that and he has Babylon destroyed. Why? Because of what they did to his people. He says, well, that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things that the Lord does and how he does things that don't make sense. <laughs> Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> you know, Yesterday, a man's prayer, one of the verses, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though it's some strange thing. So you have something happen, you go, that's strange, I'm a Christian, this shouldn't be happening. No. We're reading Peter and it says, don't think it's strange, it's part of, part of being a Christian. You know, it was, it was easy and fun to some extent, um, not being saved, living your own life, living after the lust of the flesh, never brought any true satisfaction, but there is pleasure, the Bible says, in sin, right? But what's the rest of the phrasing? For a season. There's consequences for sin. Sin is hard, by the way. <laughs> and so we find a warning to that guy right there Jesus said when it comes to the gospel and what they're teaching in our grade schools right now, this transgender thing that's going on and openly going after Christians, this is what the Lord says about this. He said, Any, anyone who causes one of my little ones to stumble, in other words, damages their faith, it would be better for that person if a millstone was put around their neck and then dropped in the sea than have to stand before me on judgment day. In other words, if anybody undermines, you either gather or scatter. Good place for an amen. You're either an influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ or you're not. And you say, well, I'm neutral. If you say you're neutral, you're not. Because you're either for or against. The Lord does, doesn't give people wiggle room. Once you've heard the gospel, once it's been presented, now you're left and the ball's in your court. But by saying, I'm not going to say anything, you've said no. Because the Lord says, I'm really the only way. But if you're an enemy of the cross, like what we see happening in our world today, um, what the Lord says, you're messing with the apple of my eye. He looks at you as one, not only his bride, but one of his little ones. And if somebody tries to undermine your faith, they're in pro- trouble big time, the way I understand the scriptures. This brings us to chapter 3. Uh, the cleansing of Joshua, the high priest, um, one uh, through uh, one and two here. I want to stop because I want to get into the spiritual side of of uh, what's taking place with Joshua. Uh, don't get this Joshua confused with the Joshua I mentioned with Jericho. He would have been the high priest while they were in uh, the rebuilding of the temple. So that's who we have in view. Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, let this sink in. We have the high priest Joshua 
Satan's there to oppose him, and the Lord is standing right next to him. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, I would love to have been a fly in the wall for this one, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Allow me just to talk a little bit about the reality of the spiritual realm and demons and their purpose and the them being a reality. We were in Peter yesterday. We actually read this verse at Ben's prayer. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And right now, they're building the temple, and they're doing the work of the Lord, and Satan's there to take on Joshua the high priest to hinder that work. In the book of Jude, verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, these guys are going to tangle again in Revelation chapter 12, in the future. It's mind-boggling. It says, Michael and his angel fought against the devil and his angel in heaven. Angel wars. And it's actually really going to take place. And um, Michael was successful. And um, Satan was cast to the earth at that time. That's Revelation chapter 12. Jesus said to Peter, now Peter was sort of a spokesman, you might say it might have been um, the inner three with Peter, James, and John. Uh, in Luke twenty two thirty one, the Lord said, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, interesting, when did he leave him? After he failed in his strong suit what she thought was his strength and his pride. He's a man's man, macho. And a little girl said, oh, you're one of those Christians. No, I'm not. And he denied the Lord three times. And Jesus looked at him when, uh, when that rooster crowed after the third denial. And it was not a look of condemnation. It wasn't a look of, Peter, you really let me down this time. It was a look of, Peter, I knew this all along was going to happen. It was a look of understanding. But Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And he no longer counted himself with the guys. Matter of fact, the Lord had to have a special appearance after the resurrection just with Peter. One on one. Peter and the Lord. Once, but as, as we read, after you return to me, strengthen your brother. So we have, the reason I'm bringing these out is the reality of the spiritual warfare that is going on to keep you involved in the things of this world and not in the things of this world. Let me give you one more example, the most important one. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. It's a, a parable that we're all very familiar with, the parable of the sower and the seed. Without reading all of it, Basically, 
Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is, is like a man who goes out and sows seeds. Well, we use tractors and spreaders today, but in the old days, you had a sack and you just grabbed a bunch of seed and you flung them out there. And some of them uh, uh, fell on the wayside in verse 4, and the birds came and devoured it, and some fell on uh, stony ground. It didn't have any depth and um, didn't grow. Uh, the third ones fell among thorns. Um, what he sowed grew, but it didn't bring any fruit because of the thorns and the thistles. But the last one, it said, was a, fell on good ground and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And uh, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples go to him and say, Lord, what in the world are you talking about? And he says, okay, the interpretation is this. The seed is the word of God. And what we're studying this morning is God's word. So let's, let's call it a seed. Now what this parable is saying is that when it's proclaimed, it falls on four different types of ground. He tells us uh, in verses 18 um, to 22 that the ground is actually my heart. When I hear the word of God, it's going to land on four different kinds of hearts. And I'm interested in in the first one because in verse uh, 18, he says, Therefore, hear the meaning of the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, well, that's what's happening right now. You're hearing the word of God. And does not understand it, then comes the devil, the wicked one, and snatches away what was sown in the heart. And now we have the spiritual side that we can't see when people are hearing the gospel and uh, they don't get saved because as they're pondering it, the devil supernaturally tries to take it away and in some cases is successful. So you have a husband and wife and the husband comes home and he says, something happened today that changed my life. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. She says, you did, huh? Well, that's going to change things around the house here. You're not going to become one of those holy rollers with me. I still want to live my own life. I still want to do it. And an ultimatum is given. And choices have to be made. And I'm just using that as one example. It could be anything. But what the Bible clearly teaches is there's warfare that takes place. And... um, um, the second one, they hear the word of God and they receive it, but it, it um, doesn't have any root. It doesn't go down, and that seed dies. If, if, it does, if you don't cover the seed up, the seed dies, right? Everybody with me on that one? We have Christianese for that. We call they weren't rooted and grounded. Well, what does that mean? It means, as it says in First Peter, as a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word so that you can grow. You have, this is food. And so when you get saved and when a baby is born, the first thing naturally, instinctively, is that it has milk from his mother's breast. And it's baby, that's food for a good couple months. And if that doesn't happen, the baby dies. Now it's same spiritually. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And unless that word is really deep down in, these days, 
And a lot of Christians don't stand a chance. And um, the last two are, are good. One didn't bring forth fruit, but they were saved. And the last one was very, very fruitful. So we have, let's keep it in context. Um, let's go back to Zechariah. We have Satan toe-to-toe with the Lord. He's there to hinder the work of Joshua, the high priest. Now let's read about him in 3 through 7. Now Joshua was, was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and he spoke to those who stood by him, saying, Take away those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with, with rich garments. And I said, Let them put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put on the clothes of him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and if you keep my commandments, then you will also judge my house. Well, who is he? Well, he's the high priest. He's the only one that can actually go into the Holy of Holies. But he's got to be cleansed himself before he can go in. And now the Lord has cleansed him, but he's also warning him. He says, be careful now, walk in my ways, and you will also judge my house. And likewise, you have uh, charge over my course, and I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. The interpretation here is quite obvious. Joshua had been dirty, but God had uh, redemption that enabled him to extend his grace and mercy to him. God forgave sin even before he died on the cross. You say, how, I don't, how can that happen? I think I mentioned this on Wednesday. Uh, remember the, the, the man who was brought to Jesus and they couldn't get into the house because it was so crowded, all the people were on. He had four buddies. They were carrying him and they couldn't. So they cut a hole in the ceiling and they lowered this guy down. Now why are they there? Their friend can't walk. Jesus is healing people all over the place. And all they want is their buddy to be able to walk again. So body comes down. <laughs> Bible study interrupted. And says, what do you want? Well, we want him to walk. And the Lord looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. And if I'm one of his buddies, I'd, I'm saying, that's not what we're here. <laughs> you know, we want our friend to walk again. He says, well, let me ask you a question. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, how do you know? But if he says get up and walk, and he does, then that would be Harder. So, Jesus looks at him and says, so that you know that the Son of God has power to forgive sins, stand up and walk. And that guy took up, stood up, got his bed, and walked home. The point Jesus was making is that even before the cross, God can forgive sins. That's what he's doing here with Joshua. He cleansed him. His righteousness look like filthy rags. Now here's the connection. This is you and I. There's no exception with what I'm about to say. None of us are good enough 
to make it into the kingdom of heaven. My Bible says we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness is like filthy rags. Romans 11, 6 says that if by grace, then no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if it's of works, if you can get to heaven by works, then it's no longer grace. They're mutually exclusive. Otherwise, works is no longer works. Gang, this is really important to get this one. Either you're going to try to make it by being a good person, and uh, it says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, that's why he's clothed like this, or grace. That means you have nothing to do with your salvation. It's a free gift. And what the Lord wants in return is a simple heart of gratitude. Lord, thank you that you've forgiven me such a sinner. I was playing racquetball with that guy the other, this last week, and, and I was getting ready to leave, and this guy comes up to me and he says, are you a priest? <laughs> and I laughed. And I, know, I knew what he was thinking, but I said, no, I'm not a priest. I said, but I am a pastor. He says, you know what? I used to watch you on TV all the time. How come you're not on there anymore? And I said, well, Time Warner Cable discontinued all religious broadcasting. He said, um, um, yeah, I used to watch and I, I like the Bible studies and, and all that. He says, I go to certain, certain such, I can't remember, a Catholic church. And I mean, this is a direct quote, and that's why I'm telling the story this morning. Um, he says, I'm doing as many good works right now as I possibly can. I'm volunteering here. And he's going through this list of things that he's doing. And he closed it up by saying, so I can go to heaven. And I went, hmm, where do we go with this one? And I said, you know, I won't use his name, but um, I said, can we talk sometime? And he said, you know, I just talked to my my priest, this last week, we were talking about the book of Malachi and that Jesus' name is in, called Emmanuel in the book of Malachi. And I said, no, <laughs> that's Isaiah. And I said, Malachi ends with a prophecy that says, I will send you Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children and the hearts of the children towards the father. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist, but also about Elijah in Revelation chapter 11. He said, really? And we had people coming and going as um, I felt compelled to to share with him, hoping that he would um, actually want to get together and talk. And he said, absolutely, I want to talk more. What do I want to talk to him about? Grace is one thing. Works is another thing. They are mutually exclusive. Yet how many people do you know that God judges on his curve? (laughs) No, he doesn't. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what the word all means in the Greek? All. (laughs) All have sinned. It's common ground. There's none righteous, no, not one. And there's only one issue. The issue is sin, and we've all sinned. And there's only one man who lived a perfect life. And there's only one man who, was, when he was tempted, didn't yield to it. And he was a perfect sacrifice. And when John the Baptist saw him for the first time, he says, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. 
And if you're Jewish, you're thinking about Passover. Because every year they would sacrifice a lamb. That blood had to be shed. It was simply a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm praying for my friend next time we get together. Brings us to our text. So now we can start our Bible study. Now I'm almost done. Just kidding. Verse 8, our text. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Please notice capital letters. For behold, the stone which I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. The branch is a marvelous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The branch is as a familiar figure of the Messiah. And uh, I'm going to turn to two scriptures that back this up. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 11. So please turn to that. Isaiah 11, we're just looking at the first two verses. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Isaiah There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, along with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And you count them up, and there's seven things that go along with that, and that's why Uh, when we get back and talk about the seven things that are written. The other one is in Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah would be right after Isaiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses um, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely now that his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord has many names. He's the way, the truth, and the life the good shepherd, the branch, and um, king of kings and lord of lords, and the list goes on and on for his titles. Uh, Let's go back to Zechariah, where it talks about these seven, it talks about the stone. Now you understand the reason for the title, the branch, the stone, and the kingdom. The branch is Jesus Christ. The stone is Jesus Christ. Remember the stone that came out of the mountain and smote the image? Well, it's also, um, we, we read here, that I've laid before Joshua the stone, our seven eyes, behold, I engraved this inscription. And it's a reference to the Lord. It could be what we just read in Isaiah because there are seven things that went along with that. Um, but it could also be Revelation chapter 4 that deals with the eyes. 
So if, if you would turn quickly to Revelation 4. Revelation 4 is, notice, um, if you have a red letter Bible, we've gone from red letters to black letters. Because I believe the church age is over at this time in the rapture. After these things is a Greek term, metatonta, after these things. After what things? After the things of the church. When the church is raptured, John hears a voice like a trumpet and says, come up here. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for that trumpet myself. And I'm waiting for what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment. A twinkling of an eye, that quick. We're all going to be changed. And this flesh, this mortal flesh will put on immortality. And we'll have our new bodies, just like that. So John uh, is caught up, and he's actually in the throne room. And in verse 5, it says, While he was there, there was thrones that preceded lightnings and thunders and voices, and there was seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, which we just read about in Isaiah 11. And before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So in turning to Zechariah where it talks about the stone and eyes that are seven, um, it could either pertain to what we read in Isaiah or what we're reading here in the, the throne room. But... This branch and this stone, again, uh, we know that it's a reference to Jesus. Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected have become the, the chief cornerstone. And hopefully tying this all up together, I want to close in Luke chapter 20 and leave you with a question. I love Luke 19 and Luke 20. Because in it, both these chapters, Psalm 118 is quoted. And I just quoted Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, you know the story. It was Palm Sunday. And the people were praising the Lord. Verse 38 of 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They, they were quoting what the religious leaders knew was a messianic psalm that could only be sung to the Messiah. And here the people are singing it to Jesus. And it really ticks off the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, rebuke your followers. They think you're the Messiah. And I love what the Lord says. He says, I tell you the truth. If they don't worship me right now, if they would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And I just, I think, well, just for a minute, don't do anything. Don't say nothing. I want to hear Stones talk, okay? But, you know, you don't play mind games with the creator of the mind. And the Lord turns a table using the same verses on these scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 20 when he explains what the kingdom of heaven is all about. He says, he told the parable about a vine dresser in verse 9. And when it was time to 
collect his fruit, he would send his servants, but they would send him away empty-handed. And he would do this again. He'd send another servant and another and another and another. Who were they? They were the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah. And the people wouldn't listen. That's why they went into captivity. But then the parable says, the father says, well, I'm going to send my own son. Surely they'll listen to him. So now they're talking about Jesus himself. And Jesus is putting himself in the parable. I'll send my own son. Sure, they'll have respect for the creator of the universe. He'll prove it by walking on water and raising people from the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, the lame walking. Well, he'll plenty of evidence will be there that he is indeed the Messiah. They'll, They'll respect that. And yet they did not respect the son But they got together um, in verse 14 when the vine dressers saw him. These would be the scribes and the Pharisees. They reasoned among themselves saying, well, he's the heir. Let's kill him. And that the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. The Lord is talking about his own death um, as the scribes and the Pharisees plotted. And then he says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them when he comes? Now he's talking about they're going to have to give an account for what he did. Now what do you suppose is going to happen? He says he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, certainly not. And he looked at them, and I love this because he just turns the table on these guys. Verse 17, he says, well, Tell you what, guys, what is this that is written? The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. John 1, verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And now the gospel has been opened up to Gentiles and given it to others. Oh, he's not through with the Jewish people yet. But I want to leave you this morning with what he says about the stone in verse 18. It's a closing question. He says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. The guys were commenting, uh, one of the guys at men's prayer yesterday, that the Lord finally broke him and that the Lord has blessed him and just, you know, the joy of the Lord was all over him. But he said, I had to get to that place where I was broken. And only then could the Lord take control of my life. Falling on the stone and being broken. And, you know, that's most of us here, I would say, that that know the Lord. We had to get to that place of being totally broken. That's what's being said here. You fall on the stone. Who is the stone? Jesus. We'll be broken, but... On whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You have one of two options when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can humble your heart and say everything about what the Bible says about me is true, that I'm not righteous. And that if I, would, if I died today without the Lord's righteousness, I wouldn't go to heaven, I would go to hell. What I just told you is true. And if a person rejects the gospel after hearing it, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the only sin that can't be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus is the only way to be saved. And if you reject that, then there's no other way you can be saved. So the closing question is, the stone, has it broken you? The first thing the Holy Spirit does before it comforts you is it convicts you that you really are a sinner and you really need a Savior. I need an amen right now. That's true. Well, that doesn't feel good. may not, but it's the truth. What I just told you is the truth. And how you answer that question is going to determine your eternal destiny. Let's stand. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through the scriptures. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would bring to life uh, these words. And um, we thank you that we see the awesomeness of the scriptures and how you connect through prophecy your word. I pray for any of this morning, Lord, that you're touching hearts, that they'd be open and not harden their heart to your voice. Bring them to that place of brokenness so that um, they can be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.